This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Does all that woo-woo stuff really work? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That term, woo-woo, is hard to define, and maybe even a little unfair, since it's often used mockingly. But let's just say that in the broadest sense possible, woo-woo has evolved to include basically anything you'd call new age or mystical or what's sometimes referred to as alternative medicine. Think crystals or energy healing. So does any of that stuff work? Well, it depends on what we mean by work. And not all things woo-woo are created equal. Meditation was once thought of as a woo-woo practice, but eventually science caught up to it and now it's part of the mainstream. But something like using crystals to heal physical ailments, that's different. A new book by the Scottish author David R. Hamilton makes a pretty strong case for the world of woo-woo. Naturally, it's called Why Woo-Woo Works, and it's an attempt to put a lot of practices we typically think of as pseudoscientific on a more scientific footing. Some of the book was interesting, and some of it was, well, a little too woo-woo for me. And yet, I appreciated the spirit of it. As I've gotten older and engaged with some, let's just say, woo-woo adjacent practices, I've become much less dogmatic about all this stuff. At the very least, I've opened my mind to possibilities that I would have mocked earlier in my life. So I invited Hamilton onto the show to talk about his book. He brings a unique background to this topic. Interestingly, he has a PhD in organic chemistry and he worked as a research scientist for the pharmaceutical industry before walking away to become an advocate for alternative practices. We discussed that journey and get into all kinds of fascinating topics like psychedelics and the power of positive thinking. And I push him a little on some of the more exploitative sides of the woo-woo world. David Hamilton, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to start with your background, which is super interesting. You began your career as a organic chemist and you kind of found your way into the pharmaceutical industry as a researcher. How did you go from being a material scientist to being a defender of all things woo-woo? That's a hell of a journey. Can you tell me a bit about how it happened? Do you know, actually, I could probably trace it back to when I was a child and my mom had postpartum depression. And I think when I was about 11 years old, I've got three sisters. And after the youngest of my three sisters was born, my mom developed postpartum depression. And that was in the mid-70s, but it wasn't very well understood at the time. So my mum didn't really get the treatment that she needed. But what helped her is I remember one day I was in the school library. I'd never been in a library before and I think I bumped the shelf or something. And as woo-woo as it sounds, a book fell off the shelf and it was called The Magic Power of Your Mind by a gentleman called Walter Germain. And I, I thought, I bet I could help my mum. 
And so I put it in my bag and took it. I didn't know you were supposed to join a library, you know, and get a little card and sign your name. I just put it in my bag and we still have the book. And, you know, it didn't cure depression in a day. But what it did is it taught my mum insights and tools and strategies that helped her to navigate a course through some of the really difficult days. Taught her things like meditation and affirmations and positive attitude. And I remember my mom as I was a teenager pumping her fist and saying, I can do it, mind over matter. It's the thought that counts. And she was doing like affirmations, but using her body to generate a positive mindset. And it didn't cure her, but you know, it it did help her to manage her state. And so as I was growing up, my mom and I had hours and hours and hours of conversations about the power of the mind and meditation and visualization and stuff. So wind the clock forward and after I finished my PhD and I was developing drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer, when I started to see drug trial results, even though it was fascinating to see that what drugs and medicines that I'd worked on were working. What was more fascinating for me is just how many people were improving on placebos because they thought they were getting the drug and, and it wasn't very well understood at the time. And none of my colleagues understood. In fact, when I even said the mind must be having an effect on the body, it was kind of a, not mocked, but you know, my, these were my friends. We hung out and drunk beers together. No one was being unkind to me, but, but they did think it was quite amusing that I would even entertain an idea that the mind could be affecting the body in such a way. But I started to research it and realising that, yes, when you take a placebo and you believe that this is what is supposed to happen, then that belief itself begins to guide what happens inside your brain. So what's happening in the brain is occurring as a consequence of what you're believing. And so that was the beginning of my transition out of doing real hard science organic chemistry into more exploring the link between psychology and biology. And what was your explanation for the placebo effect when you still had your, you know, organic chemist hat on? Right? How did the pharmaceutical industry make sense of the placebo effect? How did your scientific mind makes sense of the placebo effect? Well, at the time, I asked a lot of my friends and even more senior colleagues, and no one understood it. In fact, everyone just said, oh, it's just the placebo effect. And if I asked people further, they would say, you know, these people would just have improved anyway. And that was about the standard of explanation because no one understood it. So I took it upon myself to start researching it. So I went into the medical library. And it was astonishing for me to find that even then, there was research that had been done. In fact, the first research was done on how the placebo effect works, you know, more than a decade before I actually left the pharmaceutical industry. And it was on dental injections when people had gone through, you know, root canal surgery on placebo injections. And what happened is their brain had actually produced its own version of morphine. And so morphine is an opiate. It's the brain's natural painkiller. So when a person was given a placebo injection to relieve pain, they did actually have a relief of pain, but it's because their belief caused their brain to produce its own version of morphine. So I learned that when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, and that was one of my triggers by realising that it is actually a neurochemical explanation for what's going on. It's just nobody knows. No one understands this. So when I decided that I would write books, it was really just to take information that's buried in medical journals that could be of benefit to people, but no one really knows about and and bring it out into the open in in a language that people can understand. I mean, for you at least, is the placebo effect still a kind of scientific mystery or do you think we've demystified it at this point? I I think we've demystified it now. I, I think over the last decade, there's been a lot of... Research, not just in understanding how it works, but actually beginning to tap into it and and make it work better. You know, by understanding that there are certain things that can trigger a placebo effect, you know, language that a person can use, certain settings and context you can build that can make it work a little bit better because at the end of the day, it comes down to how the person feels and what's going on in their mind. So if you can use language and context to create a positive situation for them, then it, it works better. Well, I think let's pause, step back, and then I think we're going to kind of work our way through what may be going on in the mind here. And this is a lot of what your book is about. But before we get there, let's just kind of set the table a little bit. And I just want to ask you, what does woo-woo mean 
to you, the phrase woo-woo, right? I mean, you're using it kind of cheekily and as a kind of nod to the fact that the phrase has become, you know, a bit of a pejorative. But yeah. when you use a phrase like woo-woo, what does it mean? It's really, I mean, if I was to give you the dictionary definition, it's unconventional beliefs regarded as having little or no scientific basis, especially those related to spirituality, mysticism, and alternative practices. And I guess that's the context. When I would use the term woo-woo, I always find myself, and it's just a habit, is I make inverted commas with my fingers when I say it, and I can't help it. <laughs> just a habit of yeah. saying woo-woo. Yeah, I do it too. And, and what I'm really using, I'm using the term in a lightened version of the fact that we dismiss things as woo-woo. The term actually originated in the 1980s. It's believed to have originated in the 1980s really in imitation of the wailing sounds that ghosts would make in some of these older movies when the ghosts would go woo-woo with the white sheet over them. <laughs> So I think the term originated to do with that. I don't know that for a fact, but that's as far back as I could find any reference to the term. When I worked in the pharmaceutical industry in the late 90s, the term then used was quackery. And all of a sudden, people just started referring to these things as woo-woo. Okay, well, let's get into it with the relationship between our minds and the physical world. I'm not sure that you would claim that our thoughts can transform or alter reality. But I do think you believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that our minds, our thoughts can participate in reality and affect our bodies. Can you just say a bit about that relationship and how you see it? I would say that our patterns of thinking, the things that we, you know, the way we feel on a moment-to-moment basis, these all have physical effects inside the brain and inside the body. I mean, for example, if you were to think of a person that you you have an issue with or even think of a particular situation to do with that person, then the thinking of that person makes you feel stressed. But the feeling of stress it actually brings about chemical changes in the brain and chemical changes inside the body. So these changes in the brain and body are happening as a consequence of how you're feeling, which is really triggered by where your mind, the direction your mind's pointed in. A good opposite analogy and I say opposite because physiologically speaking the opposite of stress is kindness you know I often ask audiences that what do you think is the opposite of stress and almost everyone says it's peace or it's calm but those are the absence of stress not the opposite in terms of the physiological conditions inside the body the opposite of stress is kindness so if you were to instead of pointing your mind towards someone you have an issue with think instead of someone you care about someone you care very deeply about, and allow yourself to feel how that feels. You might even reflect upon a situation that occurred when you felt, I really value and appreciate or love that person. And now if you track what's happening inside the brain and body, it's almost opposite to what's happening when you're feeling stressed. And there's different chemicals in the brain and there are different chemicals inside the body. But in both cases, the condition of the body is following a pattern of thinking. Yeah, you know, it's not that hard to understand the basic point here, right? And I would just ask anyone listening as a kind of demonstration of what you're saying, really. I'll just use myself as an example. If I were to get a call right now during this conversation and someone told me over the phone that something terrible had happened to my wife or my two-year-old son, even if nothing actually terrible happened, if they told me that, if I believed that to be true, it would completely transform my entire physiology, my neurology, my whole body. It would, it would just completely transform it all instantly just by virtue of believing what I just was told to be true. So that says something about the connection between what we believe and our physical bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love the way you explained it there because that's an example of something that I think people can relate to because we've all had calls to a, a greater or lesser degree like that and we recognize how that feels. But making that connection and saying, now the physical condition inside my brain and in my body is following that as a consequence of how I'm feeling or what I'm, I'm believing at that time. What I really try to talk a lot about in some of my other books is the counter to these conditions inside the body is when you think, when you dwell in compassion, kindness and love and you switch your train of thinking. And that can have an opposite effect in lots of different ways inside the body. Well, what we're saying here is pretty commonsensical. I mean, why are these ideas, these thoughts, these possibilities controversial? 
or unacceptable to traditional science or to your former colleagues in you know the pharmaceutical world, right? Why resistance when you bring these things up? Why is this taboo to even broach? Yeah, I would say it's becoming less taboo now, just a little bit. And I think because people are popularizing, in fact, you're doing it right now by explaining things in the way that you did for your listeners, you're helping to popularize and educate people. And isn't this really common sense? And I think when we start to realize it is actually common sense, more and more people begin to embrace the idea. But prior to that, there wasn't very many people talking about this, say, 10 or 20 years ago. And I think some of the the quackery idea and the woo-woo idea came because people were making an assumption that we are talking broadly about mind over matter. Yeah, I'm just going to have a thought and then all of my physical illnesses will disappear in an instant. And that's not what I've been saying and that's not what the research is saying. The research is saying that if I have a, a belief about something or a feeling about something, then I can impact my body. But also, if I was to maintain a particular pattern of thinking, then I can have a maybe a, a longer-lasting impact in the body. But I think the resistance to it arose because people who were sceptical were assuming that if ever I say the word, my mind impacts the body, then what I'm really saying to you is if I have a terminal illness, I just have to think one thought or say a few positive words. And in two minutes, I will be completely healed. I think that's that's what happens here, right? I mean, it, you can say our conscious intentions can influence our reality, our bodies, not dictate it. And that's fine. But what sometimes happens is this sort of descends into a very slippery slope and people take it a little too far, right? I mean, nothing truly interesting is is binary. You know, we can't create our own realities if by that we mean we can, you know, survive a gunshot to the chest by choosing not to believe we were shot. But it does seem absolutely true. And this, I think, is what you're saying here, that our interpretive framework for the world, the judgments and the assumptions that we bring to our experience impacts how and what we see. Does that mean we can bend spoons with our mind? No, but it does mean that we have a lot of power over our own experience if we're wise enough to use it. I don't know. Do you agree with that? Is that a fair characterization? I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I, I think that's the kind of information that would be more more useful for people because I think more people would embrace that because I think that's more in line with people's common sense experience of the world, you know, and I, and I think it's because we've made it so binary. I think because we make this extreme assumption. You use an example about two friends who are in a car and they run into, I guess, a traffic jam, right? And you talk about how their divergent attitudes about traffic affects their, their biology really and their whole emotional state. So, yeah. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So if two people, you know, let's say they're going to an appointment and they're stuck in traffic and one feels really stressed and the other person is not feeling stressed. So the person is feeling stressed. That feeling itself is producing stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol in their brain. Now, these adrenaline and cortisol aren't just magically appearing by themselves because they're stuck in traffic. They're appearing in the brain and body because of how the person feels about being stuck in traffic. But the person beside them, maybe they're saying, oh, you know, take a chill pill. Don't worry about it, it's fine. You know, we'll get there when we get there. And the friend just wants to punch them, of course, when they say that. But that person is saying, well, there's nothing I can do about the situation, so I'm going to try and think in a different way. I'm going to try and reflect on something else, maybe the meaning of life or something. And I'm going to think about people I love, anything to take my mind away from the fact that I'm stuck in traffic. And if you were to look inside their brain and body, there is an, almost an absence of stress hormones. So how many stress hormones in the brain and body of each person has very little to do with the situation they find themselves in, but it really is a consequence of each person's interpretation of the situation and how they therefore feel about that particular situation. And I think that occurs in our lives in, in a moment-to-moment -moment basis all throughout the day. And I think some of the skill in life becomes recognising that what I'm focusing on right now is producing an effect and is there something else I could do? You know, if I'm getting angry about the same thing all the time, is there something I can do to deal with that so that I don't feel angry every day given the fact that that could be having physical consequences in my brain and body? And that's the way I try to almost, I guess maybe the word harness it isn't the right word, just really understand it and turn this natural mechanism into something that's beneficial. I mean, I, 
this is something I've worked on in my own life. Like I've been meditating for a few years now, very poorly, but I've, I've been trying. But I'm the person in that example. And I've been there. When I run into traffic like that, or when I'm, you know, at the airport and, you know, the flight gets delayed or whatever the hell it is, right? Like rather than kind of pausing, reflecting, having some kind of equanimity about the circumstances, I get pissed off. I get indignant, right? I, I go into this whole like, well, of course there's traffic, right? Like I'm at the center of the universe and the whole world around me is conspiring to ruin my day, which is like nonsense, right? But it's my attitude. It's my response to what's happening that sets me off on this downward spiral. And all I do is get more angry and that becomes self-fulfilling. And it, it, it's just, whereas I could just accept what's happening with a smile on my face and realize it's happening to everyone else. And this is the way things are. It's, it's not personal, uh, but I can't do it. But I know people who are better in those moments, who are calm in those moments, who are mindful in those moments. And they're much less angry. They're much less anxious. Uh, and they're much happier. You know, I don't know why I say all that other than to maybe ask, how can I get better at that? <laughs> how can someone <laughs> listening get better at that? How can we be better in those moments? Do you know what, Sean? One of my my favorite processes, and I do it every single day, and it's a, a Tibetan Buddhist meditation it's called loving kindness. Tibetan Buddhists call it metta or metta bhavana. And basically, I spend about five or 10 minutes a day every day. And you just think of different people in your life. And for each person, just, you know, three times standard, but you can do it any amount of time you want. I just say a little, few little lines, may you be happy and well and safe. And may you feel at ease. And also bring that back to yourself. May I be happy and well and safe and may I feel at ease. Uh, and you do this for people you care about, could be colleagues, random people, even people you have difficulty with. Uh, and I do that every single day. And now, one of the reasons I do it is because some of the research shows that that type of practice actually causes physical change in brain structures in a very similar way to mindfulness. You know, that if a person practices mindfulness, you know, for listeners who haven't tried mindfulness, you know, if you breathe which I hope most people are doing at the moment. But if you breathe and then notice that you're breathing, then in the noticing that you're breathing, you're being mindful of the fact that you're breathing. So you're doing mindfulness. Now, research shows that that actually changes the physical structure of the portion of the brain just above your eyes. It's called the prefrontal cortex. It's like working out a muscle. If you work out a muscle, the muscle gets bigger and it gets more powerful. So similarly, when you say breathe and be mindful of the fact that you're breathing. You work out that, call it a muscle. It's not actually a muscle, but the process in the brain is called neuroplasticity. It's the brain's version of muscle growth. But that portion above your eyes grows like a muscle. And I'm not suggesting, you know, if you do that meditation once, it's going to completely change how you respond to the situation tomorrow. But with a little bit of time, just like if I went to the gym once, I wouldn't become an Olympic champion after one time at the gym. But if I keep going to the gym for a couple of months, then I'll notice a substantial difference to the power of that muscle. So similarly, if we do practices like this, it's within a month or two or a little bit shorter or longer of committed practice, we begin to notice all of a sudden, here I am in the same situation I was in before, but I've just responded differently because I feel differently. I'm having different thoughts about the situation. I'm not trying to. They're just seeming arising because I'm feeling differently. And so the research backs up that kind of idea. What you're describing now is the power of our mind to affect our bodies in positive ways, mm. in ways that kind of harness the placebo effect. Now, for some therapies like Reiki crystals or something like that, you talk about a kind of built-in placebo effect. That will be hard, I think, for some people to stomach, but are you saying that in the case of something like an illness, some kind of physical ailment, that with the right frame of mind, we can participate in our own bodily healing? I think for some things, you know, in terms of available research, you know, there's limits to what we have been able to demonstrate. But I think, for example, a person who has some forms of, say, cardiovascular disease that are related to perhaps attitude. I mean, in fact, you know, there's a strong correlation, for example, between aggression and hostility and hardening of the arteries. So for example, if a person who had that sort of attitude was able to learn gratitude, kindness, compassion, 
and let that become their dominant thinking process, then yes, I think you would start to see an improvement in that person's, even in their arteries, in their blood vessels, because the internal condition of the body would be responding to that. And if we can affect physical changes with our minds, with our, with our attitudes and our judgments and our thoughts, and I think there is some truth to that and certainly some evidence to back it up, why do you think that hasn't been integrated in Western medicine or more integrated in Western medicine? Why the hostility? Why the resistance? Again, I think it's very like what we just talked about earlier when people take an extreme example. For example, when I first started speaking and writing about, I wrote a book called How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body. And and what I was referring to is harnessing the mind-body connection through ways of thinking, practices, but also through visualization. And, And I think it's very easy to hear that phrase and think that what I'm referring to is the moment I get like a severe diagnosis, I don't need to bother with medical advice or I don't need to bother with having a healthy lifestyle. I'll just close my eyes, visualize, and five minutes later, it's completely gone. I think skeptically, we make an assumption that that's what's being referred to. And what I've been teaching over the years is, you know, just like I don't meditate instead of sleeping. I would meditate in addition to sleeping, in addition to other practices. So I've always been saying for years, visualization to participate in the healing of the body isn't something you do instead of taking medical advice. It isn't instead of making lifestyle changes or you know other types of changes. It isn't instead of taking medical advice. It's in addition to whatever else you're doing. And I've noticed that when I present it in that kind of way, it becomes much more palatable even among people who would previously be sceptical. I think the scepticism arises from the extreme position that we're all hippies and we're all just going to close our eyes, put a few crystals in our hands and we'll be instantly healed. If we take that position, there will always be scepticism. This is part of what I was trying to do with this book, is try to bridge a gap that's very broad. That It's not about, you know, there's a lot of people who believe that it's all about the things we do in the West. But what I'm trying to say with this is, how about we take the best of the West, but we package it together with the best of all the rest? And I think something in the middle there between the best of the East and the best of the West or the best of the West and the best of all the rest between mainstream medicine with a number of alternative practices, sometimes more of one, less of the other, sometimes less of one, more of the other, some sort of fusion, something in the middle, I think would be beneficial for a large number of people. So that's really what I've been trying to do over the years. And especially with this book is trying to present a middle ground I think a lot more of us are going to find something in that middle ground that might be beneficial to more people. Well, certainly the kind of conventional position um, in the West or certainly in the pharmaceutical industry is that if we have some kind of physical or chemical ailment, and I use that word very loosely, it requires a physical or a chemical solution. That is Hmm. certainly the motivating premise of the pharmaceutical industry and, and Western medicine. Do you see that? purely as a function of of the profit model? I definitely see that as the case, but what I I take comfort from the fact that I think we are beginning to understand that there's so many other things that we can do to benefit health, not necessarily instead of all these things, but if we take the best of everything. You know, in the UK, we have a large movement. It's a large organisation, you know, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. It's a lot of young doctors who are, studying and learning that instead of prescribing medication for a number of conditions, maybe we can prescribe a lifestyle intervention first. And I have a a few friends that are part of that society. They're all young doctors and they say, okay, so you have high blood pressure or diabetes. So rather than put you on medication, how about we try this lifestyle intervention? And some of that can be, as well as diet and exercise, it can be meditation. Some of it can be visualization practices. And I think this kind of thing is increasing more and more and more. And I think as it begins to increase in people's common sense experience tells them that if I eat better, for example, I'm less likely to get sick and I might recover faster from X, Y, and Z. So I almost, you know, build the mind-body connection into this kind of stuff. It's not about one or the other for me. It's about saying, can we do this as well as everything else? That basic idea that there is a connection between our minds and our bodies seems undeniable to me. It's why meditation can make you feel better, and it's at the heart 
of our understanding of the placebo effect. But things get dicey when people start talking about this prescriptively, as if your mind can control the world around you. But I'll ask Dr. Hamilton if there's any truth to this broader idea after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Well, there is something to this idea that you'll attract the things you fixate on the most or that your disposition, your orientation to the world will gradually shape the people around you and perhaps make them more like you. I mean, is that sort of what you have in mind or is that taking it too far? No, no, I, I would say that it's a very broad concept. I guess a different language would be people talk about if you put out good vibes, then you're more likely to have similar people in your life kind of thing. And I guess for me, I, I try to think kindly of people and to be kind. And what I notice as I've been practicing that for a number of years, that most of my circle of friends and people I interact with tend to have a similar kind of mindset, but they didn't just miraculously fall out the sky. But gradually, and I think there is a gradual process that occurs, there's definitely something I think there, that gradually we just find, not all of the time, but a lot of the time, the direction of our thinking seems to influence, broadly speaking, the circumstances we find ourselves in. But I don't know exactly how. Can I ask you about Reiki and crystals? You know, because I have, I have to yeah. say, the crystals thing is something that has always struck me as yeah, peak woo-woo. <laughs> I don't want to dismiss it entirely or unfairly. So yeah, what is the case for using crystals as like an act of a practice of healing? So for me, crystals, it's more of an aid to meditation. The example I use in the book is a clear crystal. Because of its clarity, it plays the role as what's called a mental representation. It's something that for me represents mentally a clear state of being that I would seek to attain through meditation. And that is consistent with a Buddhist practice called Dzogchen. And in Dzogchen, a Dzogchen master will use a clear quartz actual crystal or a crystal sphere, but as clear as they can possibly get it. And its clarity in the teaching of Dzogchen does serve as what's called in cognitive psychology a mental representation. And so the clearer the crystal, it's there as a reminder as the practitioner does the meditation practice, it sits there on the altar as a reminder of the goal. And the goal is to attain this clear state of being, you know, so having thoughts only of love and kindness and having a mentally clear state. So for me, most of my experience or use of crystals in that sense is using them as an aid to meditation where the clarity of a crystal represents to me mentally the clear state of being. That's how I described it in the book because there's no scientific studies on crystals. But I didn't want to dismiss the subject because a lot of people do find value in them. So if the clarity of a crystal 
can act as, a, I guess, an anchor. You know, I will anchor this way of thinking to that object. Another way crystals can impact us that I also touched on is through the science of colour psychology. And this is a very well understood science. It's used in, you know, drug manufacture and the pharmaceutical industry. It's also used by advertisers. That colour, by virtue of eons of evolution and associations we have with certain colours. For example, we have learned to associate yellow with brightness and cheerfulness because of this, of this colour of the sun and blue as a calming colour because of the calmness of a blue sky or the calmness of a blue sea. And so what you find in colour psychology is yellows do make us feel more cheerful and blues do make us feel more calm. One of my favourite studies in this had volunteers drink a cherry flavoured drink, but the researchers put a green dye in the drink and 37% of people could not taste cherry at all. And they swore that what they were drinking tasted of lemon and lime, lemon or lime, even though it was a cherry-flavoured drink. And what happened here is these ancient colour associations we have, they had actually overruled a process in the brain that determined how something actually tastes. So, so the brain processed the flavour not according to the actual taste, but in 37% of people, the brain processed the flavour based on what it should be given its colour. And again, I don't in the book say, you know, if you use this crystal, it will heal you of this disease or this crystal is going to impact your kidney. I don't talk about that kind of stuff at all. What I do refer to, though, is there is a science of colour psychology that maybe just like coloured jewellery and, you know, wearing a coloured top, for example, can make a person feel a certain way, then perhaps crystal jewelries can have a similar kind of effect. You don't have to spend a lot of time in the woo-woo world before you encounter psychedelics of some form or another. And that's something that you you write about in the book. You even write about a retreat you went on, I believe in Peru, an ayahuasca retreat. And I'm curious, how yeah. has psychedelics and your experiences and some of the, the emergent research in this space informed your book and just your more general worldview? Let's see, it was ayahuasca, yeah, ayahuasca I took. I went with a retreat to Peru got 20 years ago. And it was at a time when I hadn't been long out of the pharmaceutical industry. And it was at a time when I needed to find my direction and purpose. I'd kind of lost my way a little bit. And the experience with ayahuasca helped to point me in the right direction because my experience, I remember very clearly looking up at the stars in the sky and they morphed into what looked like symbols in a language that, you know, wouldn't make any sense. But it, it made sense to me. It looked like I was reading a book, a manuscript, and it said that there is nothing outside of you. The entire world is a projection of your thoughts and emotions, your feelings, your hopes and dreams, and uh, you need no special tools or techniques to heal or to create. All you have to do is believe. That's what the manuscript in the sky said, and I wrote it down in my diary. And whether that was my own projection of my own consciousness was beside the point. What it did for me is that confirmed something that I intuitively felt to be true. And it helped me, I guess it helped to guide the next few years where I could have got much more wedded to science, but instead I kept a spiritual part of myself. And I think the psychedelics there helped me to always maintain a, a footprint in that softer spiritual side. And I think that's helped me in how I tackle science and how I use science. It's helped me have empathy and compassion and understanding of people in the different languages that each person, and I don't mean like French and German and Spanish, but the different languages people use. Some people use very woo-woo spiritual language and it's, I think it's helped me to understand people's language a little bit better and not, as a scientist, not be dismissive, but understand them better. Yeah, you know, some of these things are just very hard to measure. You know, going back to, to what you were saying about psychedelics, you know, I've been to more than a few ayahuasca retreats myself. And, you know, something extraordinary that happens in these spaces when you really open up, when you throw off judgment and you're just present with people, you give them permission to be their best self, to drop their guard and their fears. And it, it really is a kind of positive contagion. And, you know, some of the stories that these healers tell about suppressed trauma and negative emotions sitting in the body, infecting the body. And these are things that get 
literally purged out <laughs> in, in some of these ceremonies. You know, I that is the kind of thing I would have called quackery before. I've seen it, you know, I can't quite dismiss it, but I also can't quite understand it. I don't really know what's going on there, but there is something there and I don't know how to measure or make sense of it. But again, I, I can't quite dismiss it. I've seen that type of phenomena as well. And what there is some research, not in the context of psychedelics, but in this context of being able to offload traumatic past experiences and offload, you know, built up negative emotions. Because in a sense, when we have like a traumatic experience or or even anything relatively painful, we feel it in our, in our minds, but the body feels it as well. And just like the way we keep running something over in the mind, it's also running over in the body. And what can happen after a while is the nervous system can build up a, you know, a charge. If you can always get stuck on play, if you like, rather than pause or, or relax, it can almost get stuck on play or fast forward. And, and after a little while, that can be related to a number of physical conditions. And, and we now understand that in science. But there's a correlation between the number of different types of adverse childhood experiences. So the term used is ACE for adverse childhood experience. And there's a strong correlation between the number of different types a child might experience up to the age of 18 years old and the number and severity of medical conditions, psychological, mentally and physical, as they go throughout their life. But there's also emerging research showing that if we do some work that can release some of these emotional charges. And some of the really simple work was done by a, a psychologist, Texas University psychologist called James Pennybaker, and he called it expressive writing. And, and there is some research in terms of group settings as well, but even just a basic thing, writing about your experience for 20 minutes a day on four consecutive days. He tracked the number of visits to a medical centre in a, in a large number of students over a period of six months. And he found that those who'd written about 20 minutes and four consecutive days about their traumatic or painful experiences, they visited the health centre much less than everyone else. And also in another study, even when they were injected with a bacterial endotoxin, which is a, a safe version of a bacteria, they found that their immune response was significantly better and more robust than the people who hadn't done the expressive writing. So there is emerging research showing now that would lend weight to the ayahuasca experiences that if we can somehow offload the emotional trauma or some degree of it, then perhaps some of this physical will go with it as well. And it might be that it's easing off the charge in the nervous system and allowing the body to find balance all by itself by just taking that fast-forward button that's stuck taking that off and allowing the body to find its own place again. Yeah, sometimes it's not clear to me how much of this, whatever we want to call woo-woo, we think might have some kind of scientific footing and how much of it is just simply beyond the purview of science for all kinds of reasons. You know, Some of the more widely celebrated studies in the world of PSI or ESP or everything under the umbrella of woo-woo, some of these studies that purport to demonstrate the causal power of the mind on physical things, on the physical world, tend not to yield the same results when repeated, right? And granted, this is a problem with a lot of psychological research in particular. But can you say at least something about how we should regard traditional scientific experimentation in the quest to validate some of these things that we call woo-woo? You, know, you know, some things are easy to replicate and, you know, some things are not always the right. One of the things I mentioned in the book, actually, and this wasn't particularly related to medications or psychedelics or anything. It was to do with research on what we call PSI, you know, PSI, you know, which is an umbrella term for ESP, presentiment, telepathy, all those kind of things. And you find a lot of research is very strongly in favour of it, but then a lot of research is completely contradictory of it. And when I started diving further into that subject, I noticed that the strongest research always in the protocol always allowed for empathy, for a, a sense of emotional connection with the person that you might be trying to contact or saying a prayer for, for example. And the weaker research, the ones where contradictory results, that was missing from the protocol. Not intentionally. I, I think it just never occurred to the researchers that it even mattered. When I started looking particularly for those research studies that had in the protocol emotional connection, the results were very, very strong. 
So I think sometimes the replicability for those types of research, because we're at a point where we don't fully understand these subjects yet, we sometimes can miss something very important in the way we do it. And so I think what is of vital importance and something a lot of healers know intuitively is that we form a sense of empathy or emotional connection for the person. And I think some of the replicability issues we've had is when that wasn't part of the protocol, simply because it, no one thought about it, really. I think it's fair to say that many of us, myself included, really want to believe in certain things that have come to be called woo-woo. But this fact can lead to some real grifters, people looking to take advantage of our desire for spiritual connection. After one last short break, I'll ask David Hamilton, how do you draw the line between woo-woo and a scam? Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple they plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Yeah, I think the problem a lot of people have with the woo-woo world, and I, I would count myself here too, right? First off, it's a big umbrella that includes a lot of different things, a lot of different people, a lot of different practices, some of it valid, some of it not. But you know, you, you take something like people who claim to be communicating with the dead, right? Something like that. To me, that is not just nonsense. I think it's malicious. I think it's bad faith. I think that is an example of something you find in this space where you have grifters preying on people's credulity, right? People's desire to kind of self-heal and improve. And the line between the grifting and the genuine is sometimes hard to see. When you survey this world, are there any examples that jump out to you as examples of, you know, bad faith operators or examples of, of practices that you think don't have any justification or certainly any scientific justification or otherwise, and that people should be skeptical of? Not so much practice. I, I didn't look into that, for example. I didn't look into afterlife communication in the book. I, I think it's not so much to do with individual practices. I think it's more about individual people. I think there's a type of person who exploits people and they will find a way to do it, whether they, they do it through what we call a woo-woo practice or a mainstream practice. And I think rather than the practice itself, unfortunately, I think we do get people who, who are really just doing it because of what they can get out of people. And I, I've always personally tried to have as my barometer, you know, how can I best serve? And I think for me, that keeps me grounded in trying to do things for the right reasons or for what I think is the right reasons, at least. Is there anything that you encountered in your research that gave you pause or made you question maybe some of your own assumptions and beliefs, whether it was about 
Reiki or meditation or crystals or any of these things that you you looked at very closely in the book? Yeah, you know, to be really, really honest, it, it was, you know, about the law of attraction. I, I have found it more difficult, I think, than other people to, again, bring that word manifest what we want. You know, so when I when I was writing about that and I started to look back on some of my experiences, they've not always been the most positive. You know, some of the things that I've really wanted the most have been the things that I didn't get. And I questioned as I was writing, am I doing something wrong? And that there was a time when I just wanted to give up everything that I was doing. In fact, you know, maybe about four or five years ago, I, I was struggling a lot, you know, a wee bit with my mental health, but also financially because, you know, the UK is a quite a small country and I was on the road a lot, maybe doing 100, 150 talks a year. For about a quarter of those talks, it was costing me more to get there and back than I would actually get paid. Uh, and I got to the point where I was absolutely broke. And I was thinking, you know, I've got a PhD and, you know, first class honours degree. And I used to have a successful career as a scientist. And I've been out of the industry now, what, at that point, maybe 15 years or so. And I thought, I'm the lowest paid person in my family. I'm the lowest paid of all my friends. I'm earning less than just about the average wage in the UK. And I was getting to the point, I said, I'm doing something wrong. I just, I'd lost my way, completely lost my way. And so I reflected back when I was writing that chapter on how easy it is to take that word manifest the things that we want and started to wonder Am I as right as I think I am with some of these kind of things? Or is there something that I, maybe for me, is there a bigger lesson in all of this? Is it more for me, maybe one of my drivers, which I think is the case, is not about what I can create, but the quality of person I can be, regardless of what's happening. And so that's a kind of breakthrough I had, that my pattern in my life seems to have been more about not spending all my time manifesting stuff and achieving goals, but working on myself so that I can be just a better person. But I, I had that wavering during that chapter and I lost my way a little bit. If, is that, I don't know if that answers your question at all. It does. And if it doesn't, I don't care because I'm glad you <laughs> went there because it you know, reminds me of something, you a point you made in the book and it was a kind of aside. But I think... <laughs> One of the things that annoys people about some of the woo-woo stuff you hear, right? Particularly when people are talking about, you know, mind and world and manifesting the reality one is that, you know what, there are real constraints and not everyone has the same starting point. And there are real limitations based on those things to what you can do with your mind, right? Positive thinking is a very good thing, no doubt. There's no harm in being positive, but it is not going to overcome or transcend all the difficulties or obstacles you might face in your life. And to blame people for not being able to do that is misguided and offensive. And this is a point you make in the book, right? You acknowledge that, right? And that's yeah. something I think that does get maybe lost in some of this and it's worth making note of and you do in the book and, and, and you did, I think, just now. Yeah, I think for me, it's recognizing that, yeah, you're right. It's not a level playing field. You know, someone who has a good class of life and lots of friends might focus their attention on manifesting, you know, $100,000 in the next year and that might be a valid goal for them. But someone else whose focus is on finding a morsel of food for their child, it's a different context, different constraint. You know, I don't think that person could manifest £100,000 given their context, but a realistic goal for them might be something to eat for the child. So I, I think you're right about... We shouldn't be blaming people because it's not a level playing field. People have different situations, backgrounds, experiences, influences. And I think we have to recognize that. And, and you're right. That was part of when I was having that little moment when I was writing that chapter. I felt it was so important to say that because that's been my experience, but also the experience of a lot of people that I, that I know as well. And, and it's not a level playing field that really does depend on not just your situation, but also the influences you've had in your life. And, you know, a lot of people have had, they've been beaten down by life so hard that it's almost impossible to maintain a positive mindset for any duration of time because life has been so hard for them. You know, people have been so cruel to them 
that saying to that person, you should just think positively and you'll change your life. That's okay for someone else who's had a lovely experience for the last 20 years of their life and everyone loving them and being kind to them and saying how great they are. It's easy for them to maintain that mindset, but not for someone who's had a really, really difficult life. We need to understand and have sympathy for each other as well, but also understand the playing field isn't level, not as level as we think it is. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, something I appreciate about you, the fact that you're someone who has a foot in both of these worlds, coming from the world of science and kind of venturing into the world of woo, I think gives you a healthy balance or healthy perspective. And you write in the book that some of the discord that exists between some of the defenders of woo-woo practices and the skeptics on the other side of these modalities boils down to a misunderstanding of each other's use of language. And I would love to just, before we get out of here, have you say something about that, how sometimes what you have are the advocates and the, the skeptics talking past each other because they're fundamentally talking about different things or playing different language games. How does that confusion play out? Yeah, yeah, it happens in quite a lot of ways. Even, I think I used the word earlier, you know, good vibrations. And, you know, some people might understand having good vibes as just being a kind of positive person. And a lot of people who are maybe in a kind of spiritual community might think of it that kind of way. But people are very sceptical think that those people are talking about a physical emanation of a vibration that's affecting the structure of matter. So the skeptic might completely overlook that person and think they're just being ridiculous. I mean, some people probably do think it's an emanation of, of something. But a lot of other people, when they're using that language, they're really just saying, if I think kindly and have a, a loving affection at heart, then I might attract other people like that to my life. And so some of that discord, I've seen that play out. I've even had some, watched some exchanges on my social media pages between skeptics and, you know, proponents of, of woo-woo. And even myself being criticised by trying to bridge that gap in understanding. But I see that quite a lot. And so I think some of that discord, it would help us if we could make efforts to understand each other's language a little bit better. Well, look, I just want to say that I appreciate you coming on to the show and being such a good sport. It seems clear to me that we don't really understand the mind all that well. We are and will probably forever remain a mystery to ourselves uh, on some level. But I also think the obsession with what's capital T true obscures what for me at least is just as important a question which is simply what works what helps people in their lives and you know do i think there's a genuine scientific footing for everything we've talked about here or everything you discuss in your book no some of it yeah some of it i'm more skeptical of but i also think the world is much stranger than we can imagine and if in the end, if certain practices or rituals or beliefs are personally transformative for people, if they work, then I understand and I'm sympathetic and I, we should at least take it seriously. And I'm just as open to the possibility that there are things that seem crazy now that maybe one day will seem banal in the light of more science or more observation or whatever. Okay, that's a really long winded way of saying thanks for being here. I, I really appreciate it this conversation. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review and join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.
In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 